It's so good to see y'all, isn't it? Isn't it just like a breath of fresh air to be back in the room together? And I'm just taking in all the faces just for a moment because I have missed all of you guys so much. Um, and I'm just happy to be here. Y'all happy to be here? Yes. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Well, we're about to take a journey together over the next four weeks. And this journey is a beautiful one. But it's also a heart-wrenching one. It's an awe-inspiring one and one that's really going to make us reflect. And I'm excited to go with you guys on this journey to the cross as we lead up to Easter weekend. Because Easter is the most significant holiday for us as Christians. Yes, I argue that it's bigger than Christmas. I love Christmas. That is the arrival of our long-awaited Savior and King. But Easter celebrates his victory. Easter honors his sacrifice because if the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus never took place, our eternity would look quite different. The events of Easter became our entrance into eternity with our Heavenly Father. It's our entrance into eternity, but like with every good story, we need to trace our steps back a bit. Before we get to that moment on the cross, we need to understand the events that led up to it. Why did that need to take place so that you and I could gain entrance into eternity with our Heavenly Father? Because as Christians, we need to understand what we base our faith on. We can't just acknowledge the cross, but we need to fully understand the significance of the cross. And over the next four weeks, we're going to fully unpack the gospel message for you guys. So every Christian and non-Christian in the room can fully understand who Jesus was, what he did, and why that's significant for you. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, Darcy, I'm a non-believer, that's okay. I still want to introduce you to Jesus. I still want you to know his story. And then after you have all the facts for yourself, you can decide whether or not you want to acknowledge him as your savior too. I'm just here to make the introduction. So church, as we embark on this journey, can we just pray together? God, I thank you so much for who you are, for what you did for us, and for how you're about to speak to us as we go on this beautiful journey with you. God, I thank you so much that this morning we could be welcomed back into your house. We could come together as a family of believers and we could worship you. God, I pray that in this moment you would open eyes and open hearts to hear part of your story that maybe they've skimmed over in the past. Maybe it was too hard to hear in the past, but God, I pray that we would learn something through this part of your story today. So Lord, would you speak because your people here are ready to listen. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You know, the world over recognizes that the cross is a symbol of the Christian faith. Why? Because it represents the pinnacle of what we read in the Bible. And I believe every Christian needs to understand the fullness of the cross and be able to explain to somebody else, how do they become a Christian? You know, so many people are asking that question these days, how do I become a Christian? And sadly, so many Christians cannot fully answer them. But I hope that by the end of these four weeks, as we get to Easter, every Christian and non-Christian in the room could tell you how to become a Christian. That is my hope and my prayer. So I encourage you guys, as we go on this journey to unpack the fullness of the gospel, take notes. Maybe God is going to say something to you that you haven't thought of before. Maybe there's going to be fresh inspiration or fresh revelation for you. So take notes, whether it's on the app where you can download the notes through our Elam app or go old school, pen and paper. But then reread these stories that we're about to read together. Reread them at home with your family, with your spouse or on your own. Because God truly wants to teach you something. But it's up to you whether or not you actually engage with him. But we're going to go on this journey and we're going to start. With Jesus's betrayal, say betrayal. It's not a nice word, is it? 
And I know that, you know, coming back the first service in the building, you might have wanted a more lively message, but this is one of my more serious messages, but this is so important that we understand this. But we're starting with Jesus' betrayal. It's a moment where somebody who stood have stood who should have stood with Jesus until the very end was actually the very one to sell him out. So we're going to start in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, in verse 1. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the son of man, speaking of himself, will be handed over to be crucified. And then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But they say, oh, don't do it during the festival. We don't want to cause a riot. Because here's the thing, I wanted you to understand that because they had reached a point in Jesus's ministry where more and more people were choosing to follow him. More and more people were choosing to lay down their lives in pursuit of relationship with God. More and more people were witnessing miracles. They were witnessing incredible healings. They were witnessing the resurrection of the dead. They were witnessing demons being cast out. Jesus was everything who he said he was. He was the long-awaited Messiah. But this infuriated the officials the chief priests and the elders who should have been rejoicing that the long-awaited Savior was finally there. Instead, they were secretly scheming to kill him because he did not fit into their limited box of thinking about what they thought a Savior and King should look like. Because Jesus, he didn't look all high and mighty. Jesus didn't look like a big old buff warrior. He did not follow their rules on how he should conduct ministry. So instead of choosing to humble themselves and actually learn from God in person, they decided to elevate themselves as superior and plot to kill him. I'm going to pick it up in verse 14 where it says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, say Judas, say Judas, yeah. He went to the chief priest and he asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, Judas Iscariot, he was one of Jesus's chosen 12 disciples. He had just spent a few years in ministry with Jesus. He had witnessed the power and the glory of the Messiah in action. Yet his sinful nature led him to value 30 pieces of silver over devotion to his rabbi. He was somebody who dined at the same table as Jesus on multiple occasions. He was somebody who, while in ministry with Jesus, would have actually led other people to follow him. He was on Jesus's dream team. He was in that, that chosen group that were going out to spread the gospel message. And it was him who, when the pressure of culture intensified, when the walls felt like they were closing in on every side, instead of choosing to undergo that pressure and persecution, a persecution with Jesus, he chose to sell him out. He saw the escape button and he pushed it. You know, when I was thinking about this story, I was reminded of how many game shows we watch today where people are tempted to take the money and run, right? That's, that's the ultimate game show in a box is there's money. Are you going to take it and run or are you going to risk it and go all the way not knowing how this is going to pan out, right? We watch those shows because we know the power that money has on people. And so Judas heard the devil whisper in his ear in this very moment like a cheeky game show host, Judas, you got 30 pieces of silver. You could walk away right now. Do you really think that Jesus is your winning ticket? You really going to go all the way with him? Just take the money. 
and Judas did. This was simply the beginning of Jesus's betrayal. The beginning of Jesus becoming alienated and isolated, not only from his followers, but also from his disciples and soon from his heavenly father. You think you know what isolation feels like? Yes, we have experienced it to a greater degree in the last few years than we ever have in our lives. But what we've been through is still nothing in comparison to what Jesus walked through. So let's see how this plays out. I'm picking up in verse 36. It says, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. Say Gethsemane. I know that's a harder one, but that word means oil press. It's a place where Jesus is about to experience the word seneco or senecho, a word that can mean pressed or tormented. And he says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And then he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he says to these three, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Would you stay here and keep watch with me? Then he leaves the three and he goes a little bit further and he falls with his face to the ground and he prays, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me yet, not as I will, but as you will. Then he returns to his disciples and he finds those boys sleeping. He says, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? And he asked Peter, would you watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He goes away a second time and prays, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. He comes back and the boys are sleeping again. But what is this cup that Jesus is referencing? Is he referencing the cup of the physical suffering that he knows he's about to endure? Is it the cup of torture, the the cup of betrayal of his friends or the mockery and abuse from his enemies? Nothing could actually lead us to believe that these were the things that Jesus dreaded. His physical and moral courage throughout his earthly ministry attests to this. He knew that the world would hate him and hate his disciples, but that never led him to the point of asking the father to take away his mission on earth. This cup can only refer to the spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the world and enduring the divine judgment, which those sins deserved. The Lord's cup was actually this regular symbol we see throughout the old Testament in the prophetic and the wisdom books, and it symbolized God's wrath. So Jesus was very familiar with this imagery. And so this spiritual agony, that's what he's apprehensive of. It's the contact of human sin with his sinless soul. And what that means is it's the cost of alienation from his father. And that's what he just does not want to bear. He knew a close friend was going to betray him and sell him out. He knew his disciples were going to fall asleep on him and not have his back praying and keeping watch like he asked them to. But it was the separation from the father that he just did not want to bear. We'll pick it up again in scripture where it says, so he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time saying the same thing. And he returned to the disciples and said, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer, Judas. Here comes Judas with a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. So going at once to Jesus, Judas says, greetings, rabbi, and kisses him. 
Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. And then the men step forward, seize Jesus, and arrest him. Can you believe in this moment that Jesus still calls Judas friend? He still says, friend, even though he knows what Judas just did. He was in physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual anguish as he anticipated God's wrath coming down on him. The wrath for humanity coming down on his shoulders, and it led his sweat to be like drops of blood falling to the ground. Yet when Judas comes to sell him out, he calls him friend. B.B. Warfield, a scholar, comments on Jesus' description of himself in this moment, saying that Jesus expresses a sorrow, or perhaps we would better say a mental pain, a distress, which hymns him on every side from which there's no escape. Mark uses the words deeply distressed, which Warfield says more narrowly defines the distress as consternation. If not exactly dread, it's this alarmed dismay. And when you put it all together, it tells us that Jesus is feeling acute emotional pain as he looks with apprehension and almost terror at his future ordeal. This moment documents Jesus' emotional response to the suffering that awaited him. And if this is his response to what is before him, imagine what the reality was actually like. That's just the apprehension of what's coming. But imagine what the reality of the cross was actually like. A scholar named Stott said the agony in the garden opens a window onto the greater agony of the cross. If to bear man's sin and God's wrath was so terrible in anticipation, what must the reality have been like? And Jesus was facing all of this alone. He was the righteous man bearing the image of the rejected man. He was the righteous man bearing the image of the rejected man. And first at the table, he's betrayed by a friend. And this was prophetically foretold in Psalm 41 verse 9 where it says, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. The fact that scripture foretold the betrayal of Judas does not mean Judas was not a free agent. Judas was responsible for his actions. He made that choice. Jesus even tries to appeal to him at the Last Supper, and Judas rejects this this appeal. In fact, in an act of cynicism, Judas even betrays Jesus with a kiss. At the table, he is betrayed by a friend. And then in the garden, he's isolated from his disciples. He's isolated from his disciples. He took all of them with him to the olive orchard named Gethsemane, the oil press. And this is a common place where they would gather, a place of connection. But this place of connection is where Jesus becomes totally isolated from his disciples. Remember, he leaves most of them at the edge. He takes three in further with him. Then he leaves those three to go further in by himself to meet with the Father. And he asked them to pray, but they keep falling asleep on him because they cannot enter into this fathomless mystery of his suffering. The disciples, they just, they can't fully understand. They can't fully empathize with what Jesus is about to go through. Jesus in his suffering is utterly isolated from his disciples. And for those that have never heard about the journey of Jesus, this moment of isolation from friends and followers, it leads to Jesus being unfairly accused of crimes he did not commit. And we're going to unpack this trial and suffering and crucifixion over the coming weeks. But it's leading up to a moment where on the cross, he is forsaken by his father. And when Jesus is on the cross, 
Darkness descends for three hours. Why is this significant? See, at the third hour, he is crucified. At the sixth hour, darkness covers the whole land. And at the ninth hour, Jesus emerges from the darkness saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we've got this darkness, which communicates that Jesus is separated from the light, which is God. But also Jesus emerges saying, God, why have you forsaken me? And so these together affirm that Jesus in this moment is fully alienated from the Father. In the darkness, he is now utterly alone, being isolated from his followers, betrayed by Judas, condemned by the crowds, and now forsaken by his Father. Now you might be thinking, but how, how does this God-forsakenness and this unity of the Trinity, how does that coexist? I know it's hard to understand, but it does. The God-forsakenness was utterly real in this moment, but the unity of the Trinity was never broken. The two realities can coexist, even if our human brains cannot understand it. But let me try and explain it with a story of my own moment of suffering. See, as I was leading up to the birth of Boston, my world was becoming more and more isolated. My parents wanted to be here for the birth in those early days of Boston's life, but with the closed borders, they were shut out. So I was isolated from family. And then two weeks before I was going to give birth, we went into lockdown again. And I was isolated from church, from my closest friends. And then my birth did not go to plan, as many of them don't. But it was long it was painful and layered with complications near the end where I had to be rolled away from my newborn baby and from my husband, Frosty, and rolled into theater so they could get my placenta out. And for hours, I was on my own. And when I thought, sorry, when I thought I would be reunited with my husband and my child, I was rolled into a separate wing and told that I couldn't even say goodbye until I bawled like a baby and refused to be moved until they brought Frosty to me. And Frosty had to come say goodbye in the hallway. And then I was rolled into a shared room with another mom separated by a curtain. And then all the pain medication wore off. And my calls for help were being utterly ignored by the overworked staff at Middlemore. I was in a moment of physical, emotional, and mental anguish. And the pain was excruciating. And I was all alone with this precious baby that I couldn't even pick up to help. I felt isolated and alienated from family and friends, and then finally separated from Frosty. And with the lack of help at the hospital, I just felt abandoned in my moment of complete weakness. It was not Frosty's fault that he was forced to leave. That was a result of the broken world we live in. The unity of the three of us was never broken in that moment, we were still a family unit, but because of the broken world at that point in time, we were forced to be separated. That was the cup that I had to drink from when giving birth in lockdown. And although that anguish of alienation from everyone I loved in my moment of pain and weakness was utterly real and agonizing, it was still nothing in comparison to what Jesus went through on the cross. In that moment of complete pain and utter weakness, a moment where he was separated from the Father, the darkness separating him from the light because he bore the weight of the sins of the world on his shoulders as he drank from the cup of God's wrath so that we would never have to. He did that so that we would never have to. Humanity deserved to pay the price for our sins, but in the ultimate show of grace, Jesus said, I'll take your place. You need to know this truth. Jesus bore my isolation so that I would never be alone. 
See, even when I laid on that hospital bed, unable to move from the pain with friends and family, unable to help, I had to remind myself that Jesus knew the pain that I was in. He knew the physical pain. He knew the mental pain. He knew the emotional pain. He bore my isolation so that I wouldn't be alone in that moment. God was with me when no one else could be. See, the world might have forced me into isolation in that moment, but the world could not take God from me. Because as a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of me. And so God was with me when no one else could be. And especially right now in 2022, we must fight against the suffering that takes place in isolation by showing up for connection. We got to fight against the isolation by showing up for connection. That means showing up for your quiet times with God. Jesus gave you access to God. So the least we can do is show up to be in communication and connection with him. We need to show up to our small group. We need to show up to church. We need to show up for our friend's birthday, for our friend's wedding, but also for our friend's moment of suffering. And when you don't feel like showing up because you've simply gotten used to being on your own and doing this whole isolation thing, remember this, Jesus died to give me this connection to God and others. So I will show up to honor his crucifixion. Going on this journey to the cross is a way for us to remember everything Jesus sacrificed so we would never have to. Axon, you can come join me now. You know, at the cross, we see Jesus as the righteous man bearing the image of the rejected man. Because you know what sin does? No matter how big or small that sin is, but sin separates us from God and people. Sin never only impacts the sinner. Don't believe that lie to say, well, if it's not hurting anybody else. No, it, it, sin hurts us and sin is collateral. It will hurt the relationships with the people around you and hurt your relationship with God. And we often feel the impact of this through alienation and loneliness. Loneliness is an epidemic right now. And Mother Teresa said the most terrible poverty is loneliness and the feeling of being unloved. That's why it's so important that we return again and again to the cross and to the garden to remind ourselves that Jesus already bore our alienation. He already bore that moment of isolation so that we don't have to. And every time you feel loneliness come knocking at your door, you've got to remind your soul that you serve a savior who died on that cross for you so that you could have connection to God and people. Right now, the enemy is using social distancing and extended periods of isolation to inflict this emotional and mental pain on people around the world. He's using this pandemic as fuel for people to feel isolated and unloved and unseen. And he is trying to make this the world's new normal and break down the connection that Jesus died to give us. So the big question I want to leave us with is, are you living with the connection to God and others? that Jesus died to give you. He died to give you that connection on Easter. He made an entrance for us to walk into eternity. He bore our isolation so we would never be alone. The cross didn't just connect us to God, but it also connected us to the family of believers. So are you living with that connection that he died to give you? Maybe this week you need to make prayer your priority. You need to actually show up for God in the mornings when you pour your cup of coffee and say, God, I'm here to meet with you because Jesus died so I can have this moment with you over my coffee. Maybe you need to show up and start digging into the Bible, read the word of God. I encourage you to use the Bible recap if you don't understand it. 
Maybe you need to show up for your small group. You know, that one you signed up for, but you only engage with over messenger. Actually get there in person because those people, Jesus died so he could give you those people when you need them in that season. Show up. You know what your next step is to increase your connection with God and people. So I encourage you to do something about it this week. Would you step out of isolation and back into community? Will you believe the truth that you are never alone? As I come to a close today, I just want us to hold on to this, this picture of the anguish that Jesus went through simply in anticipation of being separated from the Father. Now, Jesus, he was fully God, but he was also fully man. And he knew that going to the cross would lead to this painful yet temporary separation so that we wouldn't have to bear it. But do you realize that Jesus did that for us so that we wouldn't have to live with that eternal separation, that eternal anguish, that eternal torment of not living in community with God. Jesus did that so that you didn't have to live with that anguish that he suffered in the garden. So the question is, are you willing to walk across the bridge that Jesus built for you? The bridge that connects you back with your creator, not just for now in this earthly life, but for eternity. The gift of salvation, it's absolutely free. He paid the price so you wouldn't have to, but you have to make the decision for yourself. So if we circle back to that, that question in the beginning of how do you become a Christian? Well, it can happen for you right now in a moment by praying a simple prayer where you acknowledge your belief in Jesus, but also declare him as Lord and Savior of your life, where you turn from your old life, turn from your old sins and past mistakes, and you walk fully into that new life with him today. I'll tell you this now, being a Christian is not easy. Friends and family members will not understand the difference in your lifestyle choices once you become a Christian because it will change you for the better because God has more for you. People might not understand it. There will be times when you have to pick up your cross and you have to carry it. But can I tell you, when you say yes to Jesus, it's not only life changing, but it's eternity altering. It might not be easy, but it is so, so worth it. Becoming a Christian is actually the most rebellious thing you could do in the world today. So I want to give you a moment to say yes to Jesus. What I'm going to do in this moment is I'm going to pray a simple prayer. And I want you to pray it in your heart so that you could surrender to him. You could acknowledge your belief in him and declare him as Lord and Savior. Turn from your old life and step into new life today. Then you become a Christian and the journey starts there. But we're all going to close our eyes and we're going to bow our heads because in this moment, in a crowded room, this is a personal question. So nobody else is looking around, just me. But I'm going to pray this prayer. I encourage you to pray it in your heart. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for taking that journey to the cross for me. Thank you for stepping in to take my place and pay the price that I deserve to pay for my own sins. Thank you for the forgiveness that you are offering me in this moment. I am choosing to turn from my old life and to step into new life with you today. I believe in you, Jesus. Would you be my Lord and my Savior? Not my will, but your will be done. In Jesus' name.